Nice night for a walk, eh? Nice night for a walk. Wash day tomorrow. Nothing clean, right? <laughs> Nothing clean, right. Hey, I think this guy's a couple cans short of a six-pack. You're close. Give them to me, now. Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Barney. And I'm Biggs. On this episode, it's the tale of a man who travels through time to have sex with his boss's mom. <laughs> That's the gist, right? That was my takeaway. I think that sums it up very nicely. With this movie, The Terminator, James Cameron gave us a a very different kind of sci-fi horror movie than, than we had ever seen. So we had Alien... In 1979, we had The Thing in 1982, and those are probably the the big two when it comes to representing this genre. And they're both fantastic, scary monster movies, but this was different. This, was, this had more in common with the slasher film that had become popular around this time, particularly what are now considered probably the big two of that genre, Halloween from 1979 and Friday the 13th from 1980. Mm. This was... A sci-fi slasher movie, complete with its own methodical, unstoppable killer. Yes. This came out in 1984 and stars Arnold Schwarzenegger in what was probably the defining role of his career, right? 100%. They called him the governator in California. And it's interesting because he's the bad guy. Like, he's the monster in this movie. But in typical uh, slasher movie fashion, the monster really is the star of the show, right? Like, when we're talking about... Friday the 13th, everyone thinks about Jason, not the girl he zips into a sleeping bag and then uses to beat another girl to death with, which did happen. I forget which Friday the 13th it was. I've never really seen those, so I don't know that. Yeah, that was a real thing. We might have seen him in Conan before we saw this, but this is where I feel like our love of Arnold really kicked in. And I guess he was originally brought on by an executive at Orion Pictures as a possible... Uh, casting choice for Kyle Reese, the good guy, mm. opposite O.J. Simpson as the Terminator. But apparently James Cameron didn't think O.J. was <laughs> believable as a killer. <laughs> which, uh, There's a lot of irony in that sentence. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So this was just the second full-length feature written or directed by James Cameron. The first one, of course, was the 1981 classic Piranha 2, The Spawning. <laughs> which he also wrote and directed. Auspicious Beginnings. This is one of those few movies from our childhood that I very specifically remember seeing for the first time. I remember seeing that shot where we see the Terminator, the real Terminator, the the robot endoskeleton for the first time, and it was absolutely amazing. You know, I remember this really, really clearly, too. I had seen it with my brothers first on video, but around 1986, I stayed over at my cousin's house, and we were talking about stuff, and I realized he had actually not seen it by that point. So 
we had seen it multiple times. We were kind of obsessed with it and I was describing it to him and his parents were very much not into the idea. My aunt and uncle were thinking, holy cow, an R-rated film for their 13-year-old. And despite the fact that I had seen it and so had my seven-year-old brother had <laughs> watched it over and over and over and we're walking around quoting lines all the time, wash day tomorrow, nothing clean, right? Nothing clean, right? So after begging and pleading, promising to do double chores for the rest of our lives, they basically submitted. And we watched it breathlessly once. And it was pretty late at night. I remember, I think we started it at like 930 at night. We were little kids still. And we hit the rewind button and started on a second time with some refreshments. And I like passed out in the second watching. And now it was like one o'clock in the morning. Apparently, he watched it a third time that night. Wow. And I was totally dead asleep. When we woke up in the morning... He would not stop talking about it. He was blown away. The tech, the weapons, the ideas, huge ideas. And this became a nightly ritual. So I think I was staying over for a few nights in a row on spring break or something, or maybe it was over summer. And we basically watched it over and over and over every single night. So the quick story rundown of the movie is in the far-flung future of eight years from right now, <laughs> 2029 AD, that's the, that's the date we see at the beginning of the movie. Uh, it opens with a shot of the future. Machines take over and decide to wipe out humanity, but the human resistance, led by a guy named John Connor, fights back and eventually turns the tides. And that's when the machines send a killer cyborg, a Terminator, back in time to kill John Connor's mom, Sarah, who's played by Linda Hamilton, before he can be born uh, and go on to stop the machines. And a lone soldier, Kyle Reese, played by 80s and 90s action staple, Michael Bean, he's sent back in time to protect her. Uh, Reese and Sarah Connor share a passionate night together while they're being pursued by a killer robot monster. <laughs> and Kyle Reese becomes the father of the man who sent him back into the past. It really messed with our heads. So much so that I think before we talk too much about the movie itself, we need some discussion about time travel and how it's represented here and in other movies. Because that's really at the heart of the story. And... Like I said, this movie definitely twisted our, our little brains when we were kids. This was one of two movies that shaped our, and I think it's safe to say, pretty much everybody's ideas about time travel. We had this movie, and then the following year we got Back to the Future, which was definitely more straightforward, I think, when it came to, to time travel and its implications. You mess with the past, and you change the future, for better or worse. It's much more linear and easier to, to wrap your brain around. It made total sense to me. But the idea of going back in time to save the mother of a guy who was only born because you went back in time is a different story. That's just crazy stuff. It is crazy. Let's talk time travel for just a minute. And obviously, I want to make a disclaimer. I am not a physicist. <laughs> I do not know that much about time travel. But I am interested in this concept. And philosophically, there's some really cool stuff here. So there's a couple of different options. One is that the timeline is malleable. And this is kind of what we saw in Back to the Future concept. Changes you make by going back in time can and necessarily will lead to a different future, maybe even negating your own existence. And this is beautifully showcased with Back to the Future, where the picture, you know, we had that photograph, the image of the people was actually fading out. The other concept is that the timeline is fixed. It's self-consistent. And all that happens is already written. So when you travel back in time, you actually can't change the course of events. You're actually already part of the timeline if you just zoom out a little bit. And this can be thought of as a time loop, which is kind of messed up. The way that they got the Terminator technology 
as we recall, was because there was a piece of the Terminator left from the future in the past. And it's like, wait a minute, wait, but it's like, that's it. That's why it's like a bubble. It's a loop. Like literally that's part of the story and it can't be removed. Now, Harry Potter movies did this in a really neat way. You saw the characters from the future interacting during that first pass through. They just didn't recognize them. But later when they came back through as those characters, when they were aware of themselves in the future, they were like, oh my gosh, this was us. Like, you you know, it sort of was accounted for, but they were kind of hidden. Mm-hmm. So philosophically, if the future is written, then in a slightly depressing way, this is all just sort of an exercise, right? We're kind of just automatons going through the motions. Nothing we can do can really change anything. Even going back in time to alter events wouldn't do anything because that's essentially already part of the timeline. But if the future is dynamic, then we can change things in the past, in theory, if we could go back in time, and that would have powerful implications. The Terminator movies uh, clearly work this way. Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor can avoid or delay Judgment Day. Marty McFly similarly travels through time, and he makes he has to make sure that he doesn't prevent his own existence in the process. Um, I think these are really good examples of movies where time travel is possible and the future is alterable. The last little point is about the grandfather paradox. And this is this concept that because you could potentially go back in time and kill your parents or your your grandparents, kill your grandfather, this would basically negate your existence in the future. And this is a problem, you know, problem with movies that have this, this malleable future time travel setup. So... The cool thing is here in the Terminator movies, they are really using that to the ultimate effect. I mean, they're they're basically, it is a movie about the grandfather paradox. Can you go back and can you kill the mother of the person who's going to cause trouble so that you don't actually have to have to deal with the person? The question is then, is the future truly rewritten in some way? Or is there a parallel timeline and universe that would simply be generated or even crazier are all of these things existing in sort of a multiverse with every possible choice represented and manifested out there somewhere? And in a way, we're just able to sort of pick a path. We're just on one roller coaster of essentially an infinite number. There's a great scene in the last Avengers movie in Endgame where Bruce Banner, the Hulk, explains that everything movies have taught us about time travel is actually wrong and that you can't actually change the future by changing the past because... When you go back in time, it's not actually your past. He says, if you travel to the past, that past becomes your future. And your former present becomes the past, which now can't be changed by your new future. And then (laughs) Scott Lang, uh, Paul Rudd, who's Ant-Man, is all mad. He's like, Back to the Future was a bunch of bullshit. (laughs) Because it's so true. That's where we all got our understanding of time travel from. So the movie opens in the future, L.A., 2029 A.D., and I love the flash-forwards to the future that we get in this movie. It all holds up really well. It looks great. We see soldiers running from these giant robot tank machines shooting lasers through the ruins of L.A., and there are skulls just everywhere, all over the ground, right? Just piles, mountains of skulls. The fake skull budget alone for this movie (laughs) must have been through the roof uh, because there's a million of them every time we see the future. And we get this text that appears on screen. The machines rose from the ashes of the nuclear fire. Their war to exterminate mankind has raged for decades, but the final battle would not be fought in the future. It would be fought here, in our present, tonight. Then we get the title shot and the iconic Terminator theme music. Thank you. 
we quickly learned how to play the the keys from the main theme on our Casio synthesizer. That yep. over and over and over, and that's really all I could play. But it was so great, right? It was kind of futuristic. It was iconic. It was it was really incredibly varied too. There's a whole bunch of different pieces in there, including that Jaws like boom, 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 boom. Bum, 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 when he's coming up and you feel that in your bones. Mm-hmm. The soundscape of this movie is really astounding. The future scenes especially are a showcase. Just the different sounds of the the machines and the crunching of those of said skulls. You have to imagine like on a slightly lower budget or with the wrong director, this could have been a completely cheeseball B movie, right? This, this could have really gone astray here. The music, the soundscape of this film really... Uh contributed so much to the to the world building that they did to make it believable. The score was composed by Brad Fidel, who also composed the music for Fright Night, the absolute classic vampire movie uh, we did an episode about along with The Lost Boys a while back. He worked on a ton of stuff in the 80s, uh, but now apparently he likes to do his own thing, his own original musicals and stuff. <laughs> Which we highly recommend you YouTube and check those out. <laughs> they are exquisitely bizarre. After the opening credits, the scene switches to, to modern day, 1984 L.A., and we see a garbage truck picking up a dumpster. And they do this this really cool thing a few times throughout this movie where they show modern day machines and make them look imposing. Like one day, these things are going to take over and kill you. And the garbage man's work is interrupted when a nude Austrian giant <laughs> appears out of nowhere <laughs> in this flash of light and electricity that, that kills his truck. And he runs away, and we see Arnold for the first time and hear that iconic music, that Jaws-like Halloween, Friday the 13th-like audio indicator, right? Yes. That the, the killer is here. And it's it's very cool how this movie really is structured like a horror film, uh, just with way more guns and action than usual. I read a, an article on Screen Rant called The Terminator is a Horror Film, Not Sci-Fi. And it says... The most obvious parallel between the Terminator and a slasher film is the dynamic between Sarah Connor and the T-800. That's the Terminator. That's Arnold. While Sarah's experiences as a survivor would mold her into a stone-cold badass by the time Terminator 2 rolled around, in the original movie, Sarah is very much a normal person. She's not ready for what happens to her and very much needs Kyle Reese to survive for most of the running time. In that way, she's the Terminator's final girl, which is a, a, a horror movie concept you know the survivor the one person the one girl who survives with it operating as a slasher in the jason Voorhees mold the terminator is nearly unstoppable relentless will kill anyone that gets in the way and has no remorse or regret about its actions it's essentially a cybernetic michael myers it's a really cool article i mean it is also sci-fi right and it's, it's an action movie with a lot of great action but that horror slasher element really is at its heart and that and that's because of Sarah, because of her character. Mm-hmm. I know we're not really talking about T2, the sequel here, too much, but I feel like we have to mention it because I can't think of another movie outside of maybe Aliens, another sequel that follows through with the ideas set up in its predecessor so incredibly incredibly well. When Kyle Reese is telling Sarah about how she's this, in his time, she's like this legend, this legendary woman who prepared her son to basically be this the savior of mankind... When we know her, she's a waitress, one who can't even stop a little kid from dumping ice cream into her apron. Do you remember that shot? She's like talking <laughs> to someone at the table and this little shit kid like takes a big scoop of ice cream and dumps it in her apron pocket where, you know, she has like cash and pens, 
Uh, as somebody who waited tables for like a decade, that scene stressed me out. But it really helped humanize her and make her feel like a real person. And of course, we have more time travel craziness here. Because the only reason she becomes this incredibly tough, tough badass soldier who trains her son is because the guy her son would go on to send back in time tells her that she has to become this. So Kyle zaps back into the past in a scene very similar to Arnold's. And like the Terminator, he's buck naked when he materializes. He explains later in the movie that that's because only organic material and anything like covered by organic material, like the Terminator, can be sent back in time. So Kyle Reese has got no clothes or no weapons or anything when he shows up and he has to stop this unstoppable killing machine robot. And we see him, uh, naked Kyle Reese, the police find him stripping the the smelly pants off of a homeless man. <laughs> Hashtag hobo pants. And there's this, this great scene when Reese and Sarah are stopped by the police after this great car chase with the Terminator. And a psychiatrist is talking to Kyle. He's the same psychiatrist we see in Terminator 2. And he obviously thinks he's crazy. And Reese is explaining all the details about what's going on in the future and the Terminator. And it's this really, really smart way to get stuff across to us as the audience. It's really smart. And the doctor, the psychiatrist, is fantastic. He's even better in Terminator 2. And it's this part of the movie when they're all at the police station. The cops are great, too. One of the cops is played by Lance Henriksen, who James Cameron would go on to cast as Bishop, the android in Aliens. Yes. Great actor. And it's it's in this part of the movie where we get quite possibly the most quoted line in movie history. I'll be back. Which apparently was originally scripted as, I'll come back. Which is not quite as catchy as I'll be back. Doesn't have the same ring to it. And I guess, I guess Arnold, too, he really wanted to say, I will, instead of I'll, because he struggled with the I'll sound. Um, but Cameron told him to just stick to the script. And we have, uh, yeah, this iconic line. There are so many quotable lines in this movie, even though the dialogue as a whole is pretty sparse. I think of this as, as a particular genre of film where it is largely showing and not saying, but what they do say is incredible. I think about early on, right after the ice cream uh, dump, being dumped into the apron, Nancy, one of the other uh, servers, says, look at it this way. In 100 years, who's going to care? An incredibly deep line. When I was a little kid, I just thought it was a throwaway, just kind of like, oh, a good philosophy. But then you realize, wait a minute, 100 years, this is actually all going to play out. Everyone's going to care. <laughs> this is the most important woman in the world here. Yeah. And Kyle Reese makes that one. He says, listen, understand that Terminator is out there. It can't be reasoned with. It can't be bargained with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop ever until you're dead incredible right just incredible lines are you a professional michael bean impersonator because that was really good <laughs> it's kind of a side gig you could rent yourself out for kids parties kids parties bar and bat mitzvahs <laughs> <laughs> uh come with me if you want to live which reese says when he when he finally meets sarah and saves her from the terminator in the in the nightclub and we get that again that's repeated in terminator 2 when arnold the uh, says it to sarah when he saves her the whole first part of the movie is this cool, it's it's a race between Reese and the Terminator to get to Sarah first, and it culminates in a perfectly, like, hilariously perfectly 80s club called Tech Noir. Which is really neat. So this concept of Tech Noir is sort of self-referential. James Cameron refers to the movies he makes 
in particular this movie and other films that are using this concept of futuristic technology, but also film noir. So he made this tech noir club to sort of represent that. I think another important movie that we see this a very similar aesthetic is Blade Runner, right? It has a very similar feel, that gritty futuristic, but also film noir. And I think that's kind of neat. So Sarah ducks into this club because she's trying to get, get away from Reese, who's following her. She She thinks he's... The serial killer she's heard about on the news who's going through the phone book, killing all of the Sarah Connors in L.A. Uh, she goes into the club and when she calls home to tell her roommate Ginger where she's at, the Terminator, who was in her apartment and has actually just killed Ginger and her boyfriend uh, post-coitus in a very slasher movie kind of scene, right? I mean, it's yes. straight out of Halloween. Absolutely. The Terminator hears her leave this message on the machine and heads over to Tech Noir to kill her. Uh, she also calls the cops who have been trying to reach her because she's the last Sarah Connor in the phone book and tells them that there's someone following her and they tell her to stay put. Of course, they don't know the killer's about to show up there in the club with her. Luckily for her, though, the old smelly pants finds a way to, <laughs> to sneak into the club. I'm assuming he snuck in because he probably doesn't have the, the 450 cover charge that she had to pay, right? Reese makes his way into the club, saves Sarah from the Terminator in... A scene that, I gotta be honest, I watched this movie for the show. I did a rewatch with my wife. We watched it together. And this scene, I gotta tell you, man, it just, it felt weird watching this scene in 2021. It just felt kind of gross. Like there's a scene of a public place and all these innocent people being gunned down by some lone guy. Um, yeah, this this scene felt very, very different watching it in the 80s or 90s than it does watching it today when, you know, that's a thing that actually happens. It was just, I can't imagine, given the society in which we now live, that this scene would be made today. I totally agree. It felt impossible and really crazy at that time, which yeah. made it so horrifying. But today it feels far too real. Which is horrifying for a totally different reason. Exactly. By the way, $4.50 cover charge in 1984 is equal to $11.57 in 2021. There's no way there was $11.50 in those homeless man's pants. Um, so we definitely snuck in. We mentioned the movie Fright Night earlier when we talked about Brad Fidel and the and the score. This club scene really reminds me of, of Fright Night, right? Because yes. the characters in that movie duck into a hilariously 80s club to avoid the unstoppable monster chasing them and then the monster eventually reveals itself in the club and there's a big panic people die uh the terminator doesn't have a sexy dance number with sarah connor the way sadly sadly <laughs> the vampire from fright night does with amy in that movie but other than that they're pretty similar yeah sadly right man what a different movie we would have <laughs> if that happened i've been programmed to do various dance moves including tango <laughs> <laughs> the the scene after this the whole chase afterwards uh that ends with them at the police station is fantastic and it's right after that that we get to see some really cool special effects magic for this movie so the terminator goes back to some gross hotel room and he works on repairing himself after the uh, the big shootout and the subsequent car crash and he looks extra scary because his eyebrows have been burned off at this point he gets run off the road by Reese and this, and there's a fiery car crash. When I was watching this, and Reese is is 
doing this big chase scene, I was, I was thinking like, he must be like, wow, it's so much easier to drive with all, all the skulls on the road. <laughs> this is way easier. There's just so many skulls. The future is just full of skulls. Wait, you guys don't have skulls on the road here? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) While we've seen some really, really cool special effects in like the future sequences, here we get some cool close-up practical effects. Like when he, um, the Terminator, slices open his arm, right, to repair his arm. And we see all the inner workings of his hands and stuff. And his eye, his flesh and blood eye is like swollen shut. So he goes to a mirror and has a scalpel and just cuts that whole part of his face off around his eye so we can see. And that shot is a mixed bag. Like while it's going on, it looks cool. But then he pulls back and we get a a shot of his whole head, which is clearly just a big fake rubber head uh, that's supposed to look like Arnold with a red robot eye. And while it's definitely like dated now. Um, it's still cool. It's still cool old special effects. Yes, I feel like it holds up even though it's it's imperfect. It's imperfect in that practical effect way. So I feel like there's a pretty pretty big grace period and a, and a large zone of forgiveness for that stuff. Can we talk about what we see when we look through the Terminator's eye? I think it's one of the coolest things. And of course, a similar tactic was used in Predator where we get to see through the eyes of the Predator. The Predator, of course, is seeing in thermal vision, which is really wild. Mm-hmm. The Terminator's vision, though, is even more interesting to me. You are seeing what I would say now we would call an augmented reality overlay, right? It's like a heads up display over the world. We're seeing this, this dump of code, you know, zipping through. We're seeing things highlighted. It's sort of tracking things. I think it's the most captivating thing ever. Apparently, what they're actually showing is ROM assembler code for the Apple II operating system, which is hilarious. And I actually read online that if you own an Apple II or have an emulator, you can enter something at the the prompt, and it will actually give you the Terminator view. It will show you the code. Um, Apparently, some of the other code is written in COBOL, like these old languages. So cool. Okay, this is a little weird. This might be TMI. Barney, so forgive me, but I have to tell you this one story. So I was pretty obsessed. We've both been pretty obsessed with this movie, essentially our whole lives. This is a defining movie in our life. And at one point, like late grammar school, probably early high school, I started to imagine that I could see the world as a Terminator, red tinted, overlaid with this interface filled with text and all these different symbols and stuff. I was a pretty strange kid. And I did this actually for several weeks over and over and over. And then one day I remember I was walking in the hall between classes and I had this moment of panic. I couldn't stop. I couldn't not see the world this way. And I kind of freaked out. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I broke I broke myself. I broke it. I can only see things as a Terminator sees the world. And uh, I kind of freaked out. I stopped doing it and eventually it kind of faded away and I haven't tried to do it again since. Any thoughts on that? I remember that. Your, uh, our teacher was like, Biggs, are you okay? And you're like, nothing clean, right? <laughs> nice night for a walk. It's a true story. You mock me, but that's a true story. The special effects. I love that the Terminator was basically powered by the same computer we played in your basement. Like when we played like King's Quest and Karatika, <laughs> uh, the Apple II. So good. Stan Winston worked on the special effects for this movie. He also worked with James Cameron on Aliens, uh, which he won an Academy Award for. And he also worked on Predator, Terminator 2, Jurassic Park, Galaxy Quest, Iron Man. I mean, this guy is an absolute legend. Like I said, I will never forget seeing the real Terminator, the the skeleton-like robot that rises from the fire at the end of the movie. After all, it's the, the flesh. All the Arnold has been burned off of it in a big explosion. 
leaving just the robot underneath. It stands out as one of the most amazing special effects moments ever for me. I actually, every time as a little kid, I watched this movie with a new person and that was about to happen. I was like, get ready for this. Here it comes. And they're like, oh, why did you? I can just spoil it for everybody because I was just so excited about it. And the the combat chassis, the, the robot endoskeleton, was this amazing blend of stop motion animation and puppetry that overall still looks really good today. Uh, and the design itself is just so cool, so iconic. That moment stuck with me so much for all these years that I was tempted to pick it for our, our next segment, the segment on the show where we each break down a scene from the movie that we're talking about. It could be one we loved, we hated, one that worked or didn't, whichever. What scene did you pick? Well, we've already kind of alluded to it a few times. It's the nice night for a walk scene. And this is really early. This is about five minutes into the film. We meet these three miscreant punks. The leader is played to perfection, absolute perfection by the late Bill Paxton. He's got spiky blue hair. He's got a bad attitude. He shatters the beer bottle on the telescope, demanding his turn to take a look. And these guys do seem a little out of place. Like they're kind of super punk rocker with all this weird makeup and hair. They almost seem like they're from some dystopian future themselves. But, you know, they're supposed to be punks from the 80s. And then Arnold walks up buck naked with his inhuman physique and the fellows laugh and they kind of menacingly approach him asking the endlessly quotable question, nice night for a walk, eh? And this is it. This is the first time as far as the continuous timeline as we know it is concerned that man meets cyborg. And it's this incredible encapsulation, despite the fact that we're told the Terminators are hard to spot, right? This is supposed to be an infiltrator unit. They're supposed to be able to get in. This T-800 unit seems a little off to say the least. He's got a heavy Austrian accent. He's got this chiseled body, not to mention that he is completely nude. It seems like such a cyborg would stick out a little bit, but but that, that you know, notwithstanding. Our suspicions are confirmed when he in a very machine-like way, simply repeats back what the guy just said. Nice night for a walk. The punks snicker at this, and then they continue. Wash day tomorrow. Nothing clean, right? Again, the old Cyberdyne System 101 replies in a very robotic fashion. Nothing clean, right? To which Bill Paxton's punk replies, Hey, I think this guy's a couple cans short of a six-pack. At which point, Arnold demands their clothes. And all hell breaks loose. Bill Paxton whips out a knife. Arnold slams him against the fence. He gets stabbed. Arnold gets stabbed. And then he punches the guy so hard that he actually rips his arm right through his belly. And he pulls out his arm coated with blood and gore. It's an unbelievable scene. The remaining punk backs up quickly and begins removing his clothes as we hear that again, that Jaws-like Terminator theme pulsating in the score. The scene... It blows my mind. It sets up the fact that the Terminator is incredibly powerful, efficient, and essentially invulnerable. And really, this is the first scene that it reads just like a horror movie. I mean, you're frightened. You want to cover your eyes more than an action film. It's one minute long. That's all it is. But there is so much cinematic and storytelling magic in that scene. Fun fact, Bill Paxton has been killed in movies by a Terminator, an alien, and a Predator. Oh my gosh. He dies in this, he dies in Aliens, and uh, Predator 2. He was in that. Pretty cool. That gets like a special medal of distinction. The scene I want to talk about is the big flash-forward memory dream scene that Reese has when he and Sarah, after the big massacre of the police station, they drive away and they run out of gas and decide to hole up and get some rest. They're like under a bridge or a viaduct or something, 
And it's cool because it's it's kind of like all of a sudden we're watching a different movie, right? We see Reese and a few other soldiers hiding from machine patrols and making their way through the ruins of L.A. back to their underground base. Reese bangs on the door uh, and gives his serial number. And then he comes in and lets there are these German shepherd guard dogs there. And he like everyone who comes in, like lets them smell their hand because they established that dogs can sense Terminators. We see a little dog going nuts at Arnold when he approaches one of the Sarah Connors home. There's a little dog. And it's a cool thing that they establish. Even on the radio in the base, you can hear a soldier say, yeah, our spotter's got a bad paw, so we're heading back to base. It's just this really cool little part of the lore that they establish. And it's a great scene because we get to see everything that Reese has been describing, and we get to see just how truly terrible life is for people in the f- who have survived. Down in the bunker, we see there's little kids who are filthy. They're trying to catch rats for food. People are sick and crying. Everybody's dirty and gross. So gross, in fact, that I think it's possible the pants he gets in 1984 that we've been making fun of the whole movie. Possibly an upgrade. Possibly oh nicer goodness. than That's the pants so he left behind. Sad. That's just how like gross and terrible everything is. And then Reese sits down and he pulls out this picture of Sarah Connor that John Connor gave him at some point and he looks at it. And he tells Sarah about this picture. Like your, your uh, son gives me this, gave me this picture of you. I didn't know why at the time. And apparently he looks at it all the time. And eventually he falls in love with Sarah looking at this picture, which is the whole point. I guess at the end of the movie, Sarah is recording a journal entry, which basically she says, you know, she's pregnant with John Connor. And she says like, I'm going to have to tell you one day who your father is. And it's cool. She's got a German shepherd with her in the car. Um, which again is a reference to the whole dog thing, which is neat. So John Connor totally knew that Reese was going to be his dad. Can you imagine like you're John Connor and this new soldier shows up and he's like, Kyle Reese reporting for duty, sir. And you're like, Oh man, this is the guy. And you're like, at ease soldier. Here's your gun and your uniform. Hey, check out this picture of my mom. She's pretty hot, right? Huh? Cause you know, he has to go back in time and you know, make sure you're born. Uh, it's crazy. So, Reese is sitting down. He gets kind of lost looking at this picture, but he snapped out of it when the guard dogs start going crazy as some people coming through the door because it turns out one of them is a Terminator. Uh, This Terminator, he's played by Franco Columbu, a guy who was apparently a a good friend of Arnold and uh, former Mr. Olympia. This big dude busts through the door and starts gunning everyone down with his giant Gatling laser. Like This is what everybody's terrified of, this infiltration unit that pretended to be a person. And the scene ends with the photo of Sarah burning in a fire. And of course, that's the photo we see get taken of her at the very end of the movie. Now, we wouldn't know it at the time, but the end of this movie sets up the amazing sequel. There have been an unfortunate number of sequels to this movie, but there's only one worth talking about, and that's Terminator 2, T2. Sarah escapes the Terminator, which is blown in half at this point by the end of the movie. Kyle Reese sacrifices himself. And jams a a pipe bomb sort of in the robot's ribs and blows it in half. And Sarah traps it in this big hydraulic press that crushes it right before it reaches her. And we learn in Terminator 2, as we mentioned before, that the remains of that Terminator were studied by scientists and eventually lead to the creation of Skynet, the very computer that would go on to take over the world and create the Terminator. So there's yet another level of time travel craziness that gets very cleverly and very organically added to the story. Uh, It's just one of the best sequels of all time in our book. 
stay tuned because we will definitely be doing an episode about it in the future. Oh, see what I did there? <laughs> the future. I read a wonderful quote once on Reddit. Sadly, the attribution was unclear. I tried to figure it out, but I couldn't. The quote was, when people think about traveling to the past, they worry about accidentally changing the present, but no one in the present really thinks that they can radically change the future. To our young minds, Terminator set the tone for a dystopian future where robots would try to kill us, something diametrically opposed to the optimistic Jetsons future where Rosie the robot was a friend and helper. Technology was showcased as something awe-inspiring, unforgiving, and incredibly dangerous. Despite painting such a grim and frightening portrayal, James Cameron also allowed us to see the power of human hope, perseverance, and perhaps most importantly, love in those darkest moments. In the photograph that Reese had of Sarah Connor, he wondered what she was thinking about when it was taken. He said, you seem just a little sad. I used to always wonder what you were thinking at that moment. The answer is revealed to us when she's at the gas station at the very end of the movie. She was thinking of him. And on that note, stay limber.